I like Fusion. I'd like to see it succeed at some point, but I think it's not a holy grail the way a lot of people think. At the end of the day, you'll have to go through all the various things that Fission currently has to go through, minus the waste profile. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akhund, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and I've invested in more than 300 companies. I'm Raj Suri, I'm co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And today we're going to be talking to Yasser Arafat, who is the chief designer of a new type of nuclear reactor called Marvel, something that's never been seen before. It's a micro reactor, a really interesting guy, really smart guy. Imad, why are you interested in Yasser and nuclear? I think people always talking about climate change and it seems like nuclear is kind of the obvious answer. We can build these things, they're cheap, they don't have any carbon footprint. And we've seen a ton of news articles about fusion and fission reactors. And I thought having an expert come here and talk to us about it and go really deep on this topic would really help people learn about what's the latest. Yeah, it seems obvious to me that like there needs to be some major innovation in this space. It's such an old technology at this point. It's been around since the 40s, I guess. And it's not really seen any major innovation. And, you know, you have these young creative engineers like Yasser coming in and trying to make a dent. And it's really inspiring because it could really transform how we live our lives, the cost of energy, the availability of energy, obviously the impact of the environment. So the question is, why isn't it being done? And what needs to happen to make this uh, reality? I often speak to people about nuclear. It seems like the obvious answer to people that are concerned about climate change but i run through a couple of like concerns people have and then i'd be interested to hear like what's your response to it so nuclear waste the concern is like oh no matter what like you're creating all of this waste and we haven't necessarily demonstrated that we're good at like keeping something safe for ten thousand years or however many years it would take mm-hmm. for it not to be dangerous so how would you like respond to that concern So this is probably one of the primary areas where education can really help, right? Yeah. First-hand experience versus second-hand knowledge, if I may put it that way. And it's borderline ignorance. And I think education is kind of important on that. Okay, before I dive into what to do with the waste, let me just give you some fun facts, right? First of all, nuclear industry is one of the only industry that really takes full accountability of their waste. I just made a claim. Let me, let me provide you what the arguments are on that, right? I'll come back to it. And zero people got affected since the birth of nuclear from nuclear fuel. There's no, so it did not harm the environment or the people. And there was no consequence as a result of used nuclear fuel in this country. So that's a key aspect. And if you look into solar panels, right, we have these, you know, we dumped them in landfills, cadmium leaching into the soil, affecting our water level not accounted for right now. I think we can do something about that for sure. If you look at wind turbines, they're very hard to dispose and decompose. And there's cost associated to that, so we just throw it away right now. If you look into fossil fuel, it produces a waste which is invisible and it does not have immediate effect that we can see. So it's an invisible kind of a waste and they use the air as their waste storage. They use our air that we breathe in as a dump, essentially. If you look at nuclear, we just don't toss it away somewhere. We take full accountability for it. And as a result of that accountability, there's no impact to people or environment. So I don't see that necessarily as a threat. I feel like 
every energy technology, including burning a wood to get flame, right? We have some sort of waste and there's no energy technology that does not have one. If you look into the overall life cycle, it's all a matter of how do we take accountability for that waste and are we doing something about it, right? Okay, so that's the background, okay? So yeah. do I lose sleep over nuclear waste? I don't, but they're there. Now the question is, well, you know, but it still has radioactive material that are dangerous. Obviously, yes, I'm not going to downplay that. Obviously, it's dangerous. It is radioactive, but it's well shielded in engineered casks and we manage them very effectively. There's no leaks, none of that stuff. But the material is still there. What do you do with it? So because we store the used nuclear fuel, and the reason I call it used nuclear fuel and not a waste is because we only use 5% of that entire material. 95% is reusable. So there's two sides of the coin, right? One party is like, well, you know what? It's too much of a hassle. We can dig up fresh uranium. So we don't need to recycle this fuel. So let's just put it in deep geological repository. That's one solution. And the country as a whole was starting to work on Yucca Mountain and that got shut down. And then the other solution is, well, let's not throw it away because 95% is reusable. Let's actually recover that material, make new fuel for other types of nuclear reactors, like fast reactors, that can burn that waste. That's also feasible. We can reduce that heavier actinides, which last for you know 10,000 years, down to hundreds of years very effectively. But we don't mm. do that today, but it can be done. So technically, that's feasible. There's another technology which is not very prevalent. It's called accelerator-driven system. It's a fission-fusion hybrid system where you take a, a subcritical core and you have an external neutron source to get to the critical level and produce nuclear heat. And so when you turn off the neutron generator, the reactor stops. So it's a system that I don't believe there was ever a test or test reactor or something like that. It was mostly in conceptual level. I could be wrong on that, but I haven't seen one. So that's another technology that can be developed to incinerate waste. But fast reactors are probably easier to do that. You can get electricity as well as breed fuel and burn the heavier actinides. That's one way of okay. doing it. So there's two sides of the coin, right? All right. So basically you would say waste, we're pretty good at like just holding it forever and it's no big deal. And even if we had a lot more of it, we could like burn it down to something that like has a half-life of like 100 years instead of 10,000. Yeah. And again, I think at the end of the day, it's really like a political problem, right? Technically, I think the solution is there. It's just a matter of yeah. as a country, which direction we want to go. Yeah. It's almost like actually like not just political, it's like a human psychology problem, which is like a little harder. What about like a concern around, let's say we have micro reactors everywhere. Can someone either a nefarious state or a nefarious person, like turn them into a nuclear bomb or some sort of dirty bomb or something like that? The plain answer is no. The initial enrichment of a reactor fuel is important. Hence, like in the early days of nuclear, the commercial units were looking at low enriched fuel and not something higher enrichment. So to make a bomb, you need something like around 90 plus percentage. But for the commercial use, I think there's a limit because of that reason is proliferation risk. Everything is 20% enrichment or below. Now, if you think about micro reactors, right? If you want to go and steal material from it, first of all, you have to have the material. You have to steal about 2,000 or 3,000 of these to collect enough material theoretically to even make a bomb, right? First mm -hmm. of all. Second of all, if they're operational, 
for you to access that material, there's so much shielding you got to strip away. You can't really go run away with that material if it's operational because it's radioactive at that time. So yeah. it's self-protecting in many ways from a proliferation perspective, right? For you to access that material, you have to break away all the things that prevents you from getting affected by the radiation between the material and you, right? Yeah. So it's kind of self-capturing. As And on the other hand, you also have to steal like you know, thousands of these to collect even a small amount of material to make a bomb. So the proliferation risk, in my opinion, is like nil, right? If I was a bad guy, <laughs> right? If I was a bad guy, I would probably find it much easier to dig it out of the ground, enrich it, and then make make a bad uh, in a nuclear weapon okay. rather than trying to steal 2,000 microreactors. <laughs> so I think the proliferation risk is kind of moot, in my opinion. By the way, nobody stole nuclear material today to try to build a bomb, by the way, just as a fact, yeah. because it, it doesn't make sense. No, I'm just curious. We said nobody ever like stole nuclear material to build a bomb today. So how do they normally build a bomb? Enrich the minerals? I think they enrich the minerals and they have reactors to breed materials in them. Their breeder reactors would be probably the easiest way to breed. But again, that's public knowledge. That's usually <laughs> how they would do it, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, nobody in their sane mind would try to steal nuclear reactors. <laughs> no, I'm getting curious. Has there ever been like a non-government entity who's built a bomb? I'm not aware. Yeah, that's, it's always uh, government entities, whether right or wrong. I think it just takes like billions and billions and the upside is so small that it's just yeah. not worth it right yeah i mean the upside for a terrorist group it's not that it's not that small i mean like you know you you can hold a lot of people hostage you can't really do that you know there's a lot of eyes in the world to make sure that nobody nefariously develops bombs and if there is there's not going to be bystanders there's governments in place to identify them and eliminate those kind of activities you said there's eyes. Like, how much space do you need to actually do it? Like, how visible would it be to other people? Oh, there are ways to detect. I'll tell you that. There are ways to find yeah. out. Nobody can just yeah, build yeah. something in their basement and go undetected. A lot of people I know are really support nuclear. They're like, hey, why don't we have yeah. more nuclear? It's crazy we don't have more nuclear, right? You know, I think well, there's other countries which are very nuclear-powered. I think France maybe one and some other ones, right? And mm -hmm. they think it's crazy that we're not. So what can people do listening to this like to actually help advance the state of nuclear in this country and other countries? We as an industry don't really do a very good job at providing education and learning and telling the public what it is and what it isn't. I know there's been a lot of efforts over the last many years by various folks to improve on that, and that has changed quite a bit. But I don't think we're quite there yet. If somebody like you know from the audience wants to go and learn more about nuclear, a lot of good resources available out there. You can go, there's a lot of good resources from Department of Energy from IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency. There's worldnuclear.org is a good site for reference. There's a lot of different organizations where you can find a lot of good information in nuclear. But I feel like it's more important for people to have conversations around it. And for us in the industry, we should be able to convey and be more transparent about those information and be able to do a more active job Things are improving, but we need to do a more proactive job at educating the general public a little more. I think that's going to be a key aspect of public perception. 
need to hire some marketers apart from the engineers, right? <laughs> you need to get uh... for sure, <laughs> for sure. I'm super curious on your opinion on fusion. Obviously, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of kind of announcements about it. Both, I'm curious about like, are these new announcements interesting? Do you think it's overhyped? Obviously, you're kind of very deep in fusion. So, what's your take on the other side? So, first disclaimer: I won't claim that I know much about fusion because I don't. I'll just claim to know the basics, but I'll tell you this, right? Recently, like last December, we've seen a major milestone achieved by the fusion community at NIF to achieve what's called scientific breakeven, right? Which is getting more energy out than what you put in. But if we compare that with fission, it's similar to uh, the Chicago pile in, I think, 1940-something, where we had the Chicago pile experiment in the University of Chicago, where we had a reactor that went, let's call it, critical. And that kind of gave birth to the overall industry. It's similar to that. I think it's a very, very important milestone. Fusion in itself has a lot of positives, at least from the public perspective that they currently have on the waste. But I feel like if we educate the public on the waste side, at the end of the day, Fusion still has a couple of decades to go. Like, for example, they're planning to do the full reactor fusion experiment by 2035. I believe that's what I heard. From there, it'll have to be engineered to build a plant, develop a supply chain, regulatory frameworks, all of that have to fall in place. But at the end of the day, if you think about if somebody actually builds a fusion power plant, what does that mean? You have to pay for it, right? You have a capital cost that will be engaged in it. You have to buy the fuel. You mm -hmm. have to pay for the regulatory cost. At the end of the day, all of that will boil down to a metric like LCOE. And so the economics will have to work as well. So if you compare the Chicago pile experiment, which is literally a pile of graphite stacked up with fuel to get to achieve criticality, if you compare that technology, it's actually not very high tech, if you ask me. But if you look at a fusion reactor, I mean, if you look at all those laser that were put together to cause the whole room to achieve the scientific break-even, there's a lot of technology that actually achieves that and be able to achieve sustainable fusion continuously instead of just mm -hmm. a single pulse, there's a lot of engineering challenges that have to be overcome. But my point is, you need a very complex machine to get electricity out of it. It will all boil down to the economics and the regulatory framework as far as being adopted in the broader community. So if you ask me, like, will Fusion ever make it? Absolutely. I think we'll make it in the future. But I don't think it'll be in time to help us achieve the... 2050 net zero goals, if that's our target as, as a society. They're going to be close, but they're not going to be commercially available to the point where they can be adopted to a scale large enough to help us with that. I like Fusion. I'd like to see it succeed at some point, but I think it's not a holy grail the way a lot of people think. At the end of the day, you'll have to go through all the various things that Fission currently has to go through, minus the waste profile. You asked me earlier, like, what would it take to be successful along those lines, right? I feel like if we pull a lot of our success stories, like, you know, how did the app industry and the cell phone industry thrive so quickly? If we look into innovations there, if we look into innovations in the aerospace industry and the automotive industry, we can pull some of those and siphon them selectively into the nuclear space. You know, it's not a scientific problem, right? Fusion is kind of working through the fundamental science part of it. I think yeah. it's an engineering and scale-up problem. I think if we can overcome that as a society, I think we can make great things happen in this space. 
know, what are you up to these days? Did a bit of research, but we'd love to hear from you. I'm leading a project here at Idaho National Lab, and the project is called Marvel, and actually a very long acronym, what it stands for. But it's uh, dealing with a design, development, and construction of a, a completely new reactor design. And if you look into the history here at the INL site, we built 52 reactors between the 50s and the mid-70s. So in 25 years, we had 50 reactors. And all those different tests kind of helped the commercial nuclear industry kind of flourish, get all the data that they needed. And after that mid-70s, we haven't really built a new technology here at the lab. So this would be the first reactor that we're building in about half a century. And if you look around the country, it's pretty much that's the timeline, right? For half a decade, half a century, we haven't built anything new. Why was nothing built for half a century? That's a very good question. I think there's a lot of different things, right? If you look into the work that's been done in the 50s and 60s that really spun up the nuclear industry, and it's mostly, you know, for the United States at least, we selected water as the main water-based technology as the main fission nuclear to commercialize. And various folks and companies came up with slightly different variations of the design, but at the end of the day, they're all water-based systems, right? Yeah, when you say water-based, you mean the coolant, right? Yes, yes, that's what I mean. And there's a trend in the nuclear industry where reactors are categorized based on the type of coolant, like it's a sodium-cooled reactor or a heat pipe-cooled or a gas-cooled systems. So yeah, majority of our commercial systems today that you see that produce 20% of our electricity, they're all water-cooled reactors. And it's not just for the coolant, but water also plays a role in moderating the neutrons, and it's used for reactivity control and a few other things. But primarily, it's the, its main role is to remove the heat from the nuclear fuel. So yes, that's what I meant. What was Marvel's kind of coolant technology? Before I talk about the Marvel one, the challenges with water that currently we have in the commercial designs, I mean, if you look into water, right, you want to operate the plant at a higher temperature, but if you heat up the water beyond 100 degrees C, it boils off. So to prevent it from boiling, what do you do? You pressurize the system, right? So you pressurize a coolant that tries to vaporize at this operating temperatures. It's a universal solvent, so it tries to react with most things. And it's also the moderator along with being a coolant. So a lot of the nuclear reactivity gets impacted by what's happening with the water. So there's hundreds of systems. In fact, there's close to 100 systems in a current light water reactor technology to make sure that the reactor vessel is happy, essentially, right? For Marvel, we're using a coolant. It's a liquid metal. So it's a eutectic mixture of sodium and potassium put together, and that enables both of these metals in that eutectic to be liquid at room temperature. So it's a liquid metal. Mm. It does not freeze over when it's at room temperature, so it's, that's the benefit. But it has great thermal properties and neutronic properties. So because it's not pressurized, it remains liquid in the entire spectrum of its operation. You don't need to have a pressurized system. That's a benefit. What is the boiling point? I think the boiling point is, on top of my head, I don't want to give an inaccurate number, somewhere in the 800-ish at the normal atmosphere. But if you kind of pressurize it, that changes. We have a slight bit of overpressure just to manage and maintain that boiling temperature. So it's adjustable. We're managing it around 800 degrees C for our operating pressures. So you don't need a very thick vessel either because it's not a pressurized system. You're just having a big pot of essentially a liquid metal with fuel in it. That's the coolant that we're using for Marvel. 
So you were going through the history again of like, you know, nuclear in the country. I'd be really interested to hear about that and what your view is on why technology has not changed in the last X years. There's so many aspects that impacted the industry, right? If you look into the 60s and 50s, that time frame, we were building smaller plants. And the majority of those plants relied on what is called defense in depth. So as utilities started to kind of wanting to have larger and larger plants, they started to scale these technologies up and push some of the barriers in performance that made the plant so large that defense in depth is no longer sufficient to maintain safety. So they start adding engineered safety systems, right? And that made the plants even more complex, more larger, and the cost went up. And there's this whole trend in the light water industry that followed in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But then when the accidents kind of happened in Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, because of the Cold War and its history, there was a lot of secrecy around the nuclear technology, right? Mm -hmm. And then there was a rumor that the Soviet Union was working on a power, nuclear power reactors. And that kind of gave the drivers for the U.S. to start their own power system. So they changed a lot of the thinking and mentality and policies from going from all secret about nuclear mm -hmm. to something like, okay, now we need to share some information with the utilities, but we'll have to make sure that they use water-based systems because that's what is most familiar with majority of the people. We understand water, right? Is it the best coolant? In my opinion, no. I think liquid metal might be a little better, but we use water because it's everywhere and we are familiar with it. And also the nuclear submarines were looking into water-based technology. So a lot of the history came from there. So most of the general public did not know about nuclear technologies until like something bad happened. So when the accidents happened, it freaked a lot of people out. And there's, uh, you know, Three Mile Island, even though the consequence was literally nothing, there was a lot of like hysteria around it. Yeah, 1979, right? So around the time frame, we stopped working on nuclear. That's right. And then in the 86, it was actually the year I was born, Chernobyl happened. <laughs> and then yeah. that also stifled the industry. The regulatory framework became heavier. There's the cost of the larger scale power plants became more daunting. You know, about close to 100 plants orders were canceled in the 80s because of various reasons. And so we haven't built a new power plant since the 70s. Is that right? I think the latest ones are in Vogel here in Georgia, the AP1000 plants that are being built by Westinghouse that just going online right now. In fact, we built, we as in like the United States, our design, you know, Westinghouse built a few plants in China and there was four started here in the United States and Vogel's completed. They're going critical and producing, you know, going through the ramp up and startup power. These are the first plants since, you know, 30 years ago. So it's been a while. You kind of said it in passing, but what's the difference yeah. between defense in depth versus engineered defense? So if you look into the safety of a nuclear system, not all safety is the same, right? So the way I categorize it is in three groups. First is inherent safety, meaning the physics of the material properties is such that it will not let you exceed those limits. And I'll give you a couple of yep. examples of that. For example, university trigger reactors, right? You insert a lot of reactivity into the system, and what happens when you insert a lot of reactivity, temperature climbs up, right? And as temperature tries to climb up, the physics of the fuel gives a strong feedback to the reactivity and automatically provides a strong reactivity very promptly to lower the reactivity again. Nobody has to flip a switch. 
Nobody's turning on a you know push a button to turn the system on or off. It's like you know thermal expansion, right? If I heat up this object, it's going to thermally expand. Can you prevent it from expanding? No. As temperature climbs up, it will try to expand. It's a very similar phenomenon called Doppler that takes into effect. That's an inherent safety, for example, right? That, in my opinion, is the best type of safety because no force in this world can stop it. Mm-hmm. And um, failure modes are almost non-existent in those areas. The second category, which has a very high reliability, are called passive safety, meaning you're using not engineered systems, but you're using forces of nature to do, let's say, for example, cooling, right? If I have a pot of water and I drain the water by gravity, not by a pump, by by gravity, and it's cooling a hot object, that's a passive design, right? So we're using laws of physics to engineer it in a way that has higher reliability and lower failure modes. And then finally, the last category is engineered system. You're basically having, let's say, a pump or a blower blowing in water or air to cool something down. If the pump fails or the control system fails or the power goes away, your system fails. So there's a failure modes are very widespread, right? So when you look into safety systems that are attractive, you would want to resort to inherent safety first and passive safety next. And then if none of those are sufficient, then you go to engineer safety. So when it comes to defense in depth, we think about like leveraging the first two categories as much as possible and not rely on additional engineered safety systems to make your plant safe. So you were saying as they scaled these plants and as they got more worried about safety concerns, they introduced a lot more kind of engineered safety mechanisms that required like active monitoring and a lot more redundancy and all of that kind of thing. And it made it more expensive. Exactly. I mean, if you look into, you know, because the water is not really the ideal coolant, so how do you get more energy out of a system? You try to push its limits a little more, right? create more power in the fixed geometry. So they were trying to push some of those performance limits. That was one of the drivers. The other driver was the plants are significantly larger. So financing those projects and going through the construction takes a long time. So the economics really is one of the main drivers that also prohibited growth in this area. They weren't like the most cost-effective plants out there. But if you pick a different technology, potentially, like liquid metal, for example, you can get a much higher performance systems compared to water. I guess like if you go back to the history, you were saying, okay, the plants got bigger, they became like an engineering problem. There was a lot of kind of worries about, mm-hmm. is there going to be another failure, et cetera? And that kind of paused things for 50 years. Were there any other factors? And then what's changed recently? What's changed recently is the demand. So back in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of demand for growth for electricity production. Nuclear was a thriving technology at the time, and there was a lot of attractive factors there. Because of all the, let's say, canceling of all the orders in the 80s and some of the public perception change, there's been no additional growth in that area for a few decades. Now, as people are getting more educated about, you know, various forms of energy and there's this concern about, hey, we can't continue on burning fossil fuels because we're essentially having a profound impact on on the future of the climate. You know, if you look at the IPCC report, that has some dire consequence laid out, even if there's, we continue on this trend in the next few years. So energy demand is going up, number one. I think there's a concern about climate crisis. That's number two. There's also a new driver, I think especially after the whole 
Russia war on Ukraine started, the whole energy security aspect is becoming a more and more important factor. I think those three in combination, we're seeing a lot of support back to nuclear and a lot of the environmentalists who are kind of anti-nuclear, and not because of nuclear itself, because of its association with weapons program, essentially, right? They started to learn about, hey, it's actually not a bad technology. It has its shortcomings, but they can be overcome and managed. And it's getting more and more popularity from that perspective as people are getting more educated about the technology. If you look at the safety records, right, that's really the main perception that, oh, is it actually safe? Nuclear is actually one of the safest industries among all the energy technologies out there. So it ranks pretty well there. So overall, I think those three factors is what's driving renewed interest in nuclear energy. I mean, there's always, you know, solar and wind and other renewables, but because of the intermittency, we're like, well, we're kind of like exceeding the limits where we might make the grid unstable. We need something that's more available all the time and not when the sun shines and the wind blows. Overcapacity is not the solution. And we're not having a scenario where we can have, you know, economic amount of batteries installed with solar. We're not to that point yet. So all in all, I think people are getting more and more comfortable at the idea that, hey, we might, you know what, you know, nuclear is a safer technology, it's a green technology, and we're not having emissions, and it's available all the time. So all these things weighed is getting a lot of traction these days. Does it worry you, though, that that always happens until the next disaster? Like, there's always something happening. I mean, with nuclear, there's going to be something every 20 years or something like that, right? Like, there was Fukushima, I think, you know, a decade ago or so. Right. That just stops all the progress. The problem with nuclear is you need a long period of time to get up and running, right? Like, yeah. It's not like you can flip a switch and then your power plant's up and running. So you get all this momentum, and then something happens, and then, you know, a decade is lost, right? Does that worry you? Yeah, that's true. If you look into, you know, if you compare all of the technology sets, right, especially fossils and you compare with nuclear, nuclear is relatively a young technology, relatively speaking, right? It's only about, what, 70 years old versus 200 years for fossils. Well, we've been burning fossils since humankind learned how to burn wood, right? But to really use it for industrialization, that's about 200 years, right? So relatively, nuclear is is a younger technology. And If you look into some of these accidents, these happen to plants that are really the the first versions of nuclear systems deployed in the market, right? Even the utilities didn't know how to operate some of these plants and what are some of the consequences at that scale. These plants were designed back when computers were not even prevalent. Imagine how they actually predicted some of the nuclear system performance and built whatever margin they could to have these systems operational. Right now, we have modeling simulation tools that can predict every single physics and the interrelation of those physics to a point where you can really hone down on how safe a system can really be. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. You know, The nuclear safety culture that the industry has brewed over the last few decades has been a very, very strong one to the point where you know we don't wait for something to happen. We give so much safety thoughts in all our design actions, licensing, testing, operation, performance, in every aspect of the entire development chain, that we really take that very seriously up front so that there's no latent accident later on. That's another aspect. The third one is, you know, if you think about, there are really other technologies that are much, much safer than some of the current plants today, which does not require engineered safety systems. So I feel like, you know, some of the advanced reactors which we call them as Gen 4 systems or advanced reactors, 
they really focus on technologies that does not need so many engineered systems that are inherently safe, that could use passive safety for cooling and things like that. Was Marvel a Gen 4 project? I think so. So anything that is non-light water reactor based is deemed as a Gen 4 system. So it is a Gen 4 reactor, but it's a micro reactor, right? Yeah. So if you use liquid metal, you talked about like, oh, it's not under as much pressure and it's easier to engineer. Is there something like inherent beyond that that makes it just Mm -hmm. way safer? Yes. So there's few aspects. So I defined the inherent safety, passive safety, and engineered safety before. And the way we designed Marvel, it was going to be the first ones, not in just new nuclear technology, but it's a test reactor generally for microreactors. But we wanted to make sure that these systems were so benign that they're as safe as university research reactors. If you look around the United States, there's a lot of schools that actually have nuclear reactors in their basement. And they're so safe that we let our students operate them. Have you ever heard of <laughs> any accidents happening in university research reactors? No, no, there was none, right? So we don't even think about it. We send our kids there to school, right? So if you look into what makes those systems so safe, so we try to learn from, for example, a you know, if you look into trigger reactors, which are traditionally research reactors, they use a fuel called uranium zirconium hydride. That's the same fuel we use in Marvel. What's special about this fuel? You know, most reactors have this feedback called Doppler that I talked about. Temperature goes up, reactivity goes down. It's an inherent kind of a feedback. That feedback is very strong in uranium zirconium hydride fuel. The other aspect that is kind of unique is that now I'm getting into all the nuclear physics stuff, right? So if you have fuel very close to the moderator, right, which in water-based systems, it's water is the moderator. So the neutron, when it's born, it has to travel outside of the fuel pin and see the water to get moderated. In Marvel, the fuel and the moderator is so intimately close by that as soon as a neutron is born, it actually sees a lot of moderator hydrogen atoms around it. And so when the temperature really goes up, there's this weird phenomenon. The hydrogen atoms start vibrating, and Mm -hmm. they in turn changes the energy spectrum of hydrogen. Instead of being a thermal neutron, they all of a sudden become a fast neutron. So they escape out of the fuel pins, and you have a lot of leakage. And if there's absorbers, they get absorbed in them. And so all of a sudden, your reactor turns down. So Doppler and this effect combined gives you a very strong reactivity feedback where if you add, you know, in university reactors, we tell the students, hey, you know, the control rods operate a nuclear reactor, pull them as hard as you can. And then we see a nice pulse, but no temperature rise happens. Nothing gets leaked. You know, everything's benign, no overheating, no melting of cladding. So that's the same kind of feature we try to pull into Marvel. So if we accidentally add, you know, a bunch of reactivity into the system, there's no consequence, right? That's one inherent safety that we pull into Marvel, which is extremely, extremely key to our overall safety portfolio. But this already existed in university reactors, right? Yes, but the key difference is university reactors are low temperature. They're almost running at, you know, near room temperature. They're not high temperature reactors, but Marvel is a high temperature reactor. But is that new? I don't think so. We've had other reactors in the past that were using NAC, like Marvel, and they used Uzark Hydride. In fact, you know, if you look into the space program, the SNAP-10A reactor, that actually is the only reactor we flew in space from the United States, that was a Uzark Hydride-fueled NAC-cooled 
reactor system. Is there a reason that you can't scale a useric hydride reactor to like a big city scale reactor? I think you can. Just like most nuclear technologies, it's scalable. I think some technologies, it does not scale very well. For example, heat pipes, you can only build smaller reactors with those, but you can't really scale them up to, like I'd say, you know, SMR, several hundreds of megawatts or fifties of megawatts, you can't really scale it to that level. But most reactor systems and technologies are scalable and Marvel is no different. In fact, this fuel was investigated heavily by industry to be used in commercial reactors, but it was not compatible because in commercial reactors, we use a cladding called zirconium. But if you use the same cladding in user hydride fuel, the hydrogen will get into zirconium very quickly and brittle the cladding. There's a few other. It was not fully compatible within the LWR systems and had the same level of performance as UO2 fuel does. So it was never really adopted. But for a liquid metal and with the same kind of materials that we're using in Marvel, we can certainly scale it up to larger systems. The liquid metal lets you kind of scale up useric hydride fuels, and that gives you like this kind of passive safety system. Is there any other benefits with the liquid metal that gives you like kind of defense and depth? So it's chemically compatible with the fuel, the cladding, the liquid outside. They're all compatible to one another. That's why we use it. But liquid metal, the main purpose is not because of UZRH. The reason why we, I mean, we like liquid metal, for example, is because of its two main properties, right? Well, three, actually. First, it's very friendly to neutrons. It does not get absorbed by neutrons as readily as some of the other coolants. So it's almost transparent, even though it has some absorption that happens. But it's, it's very good to maintain a neutron economy. So neutronically, it's very compatible. From a thermal perspective, which is its main role, is to remove heat. So in a nuclear reactor, no matter what kind of nuclear reactors you're dealing with, right, you have heat generation in the core and you have heat removal from the system. Managing these two is really what makes a system safe and operable, right? If you can manage the cooling and the heating properly and you have full control over it, it's a pretty safe system. And things don't boil out, you don't lose the coolant, you have a method to remove the heat. It's mm -hmm. all about heat management, right? So what liquid metal does is because of those two key properties is thermal conductivity and specific heat. So because its specific heat is high, meaning it can take a lot of heat without raising its temperature too quickly, right? So yeah. that's very important. It's a lot of good thermal inertia. Second, it is highly conductive. Its thermal conductivity is very high. So heat capacity is high, thermal conductivity is high, meaning if the fuel heats up rapidly or whatever it is, this liquid can conduct the heat away very effectively and it can hold the heat very effectively without raising temperature too much. That combination helps you have a very compact core, have a high density system, and you have a lot of margin to remove heat effectively from the system. Marvel is a is not driven by any pumps, for example. It's driven naturally. So we have heat removal on the top, heat generation on the bottom, and if the liquid gets heated up, it goes through lower density, it rises up, and if you remove heat from the top, it sinks down. So a single riser and four downcomers gives you that natural circulation. So you don't have a pump to drive the coolant. Is there not an active system at the top for the coolant? Or is it just like literally like heat sinks or something? No, I mean, we have Stirling engine on the top to extract the heat to make electricity. I but see. even if you wipe away the Stirling engine, 
the system can still go and remove heat rapidly from the outside of the vessel because we have enough surface area to volume ratio to remove the heat by just dumping the heat to the ambient air and cooling the system down that way. So we analyzed Marvel for all of these extremely, extremely not possible cases, and we call them postulated accidents. And under any of those circumstances, no fuel cladding breaks, no knack boils, none of the system gets reheated, you know, overheated, and there's no release of fission products into the environment. And under any of those extreme cases, so even though you, know, you imagine there's a seismic event and there's an earthquake that you didn't anticipate, no, it doesn't really, it still has a coolable geometry. If you have loss of power on the site, doesn't matter. If you have all the Stirling engine stops, doesn't matter. If somebody comes in and adds all the reactivity at once into the reactor, no consequence happens. So we analyze every single possible and impossible cases to show that nothing really occurs as a consequence of any accidents in this reactor. <laughs> I'm sure you've thought about this, but what if there's a leak and like you lose a lot of yeah. the liquid metal? In fact, that is a, an accident that we analyzed in a light water reactor technology is something called a LOCA, right? Loss of coolant accident. And yeah. you know, in the worst case, LOCA is a double guillotine LOCA where you're breaking a pipe from both ends and you're shearing it off and you have a draining of all your coolant, which is the main thing you need to kind of take the heat away. So in Marvel, we have a primary coolant system where you have the natural convection happening. And then around it, we have another vessel called a guard vessel that, you know, if there's a leak in the primary one, the secondary vessel will catch it and you know, the system will shut down by its own and it will basically contain everything in the guard vessel. And both of these vessels are engineered to a very, very high safety pedigree and have a lot of margin built into it that even under any operational anticipated or any accident mm-hmm. condition, they're not going to break. Yeah, that's how they're designed. Is it operating at test scale today? Yeah, the Marvel reactor we started up middle of 2020 during COVID. And we really, really wanted to change the notion that, hey, it takes forever to build a nuclear system from scratch, especially. So we said, hey, let's mm-hmm. go ahead and build a design from scratch and show the world that we can actually do a design process very quickly. And mm-hmm. so we took upon a challenge to you know, finish the design in two years and then and construct the system, right? And we told ourselves, hey, even if it takes double the time, it's still pretty darn fast for a complex machine like that. We're about to finish design. We're in the final design stage. We're buying materials right now for construction. And we're about to finish final design in the next couple of months. So kind of a long story to Roger's question. This will be a test reactor once built, right? So we'll finish construction by most of the fabrication by end of this year. We'll finish construction by next spring load the fuel next fall, and it'll go operational before next Christmas. That's our target right now. Once it's operational, it's a test reactor. It will produce electricity, it will produce heat, but it's a test reactor at the end of the day. And it operates every weekend. It doesn't operate all the time. And there's a backstory to that. We don't want to build an entire nuclear facility for Marvel, so we went around and looked at INL facilities and we found a reactor building which has an existing reactor in it right now. It's called TREAT. So it's one of the four operational reactors at the INL facility. And they have an empty swimming pool type of a storage area. And we said, hey, you know, that, that looks pretty cool. You know, eight feet by 10 feet by 12 feet. Marvel's going to fit in that. We're putting shielding in that box and putting Marvel in it. So during the weekdays, TREAT reactor will be operating. And when they all go home, 
and the weekends, Marvel gets to run for those three days. Eight feet by eight feet by 10 feet, you said, right? It's eight feet by 10 feet by 12 feet. I mean, if you look into Marvel right now, the size of this reactor is if you take a sedan and you tilt it vertically upwards, that's how tall Marvel really is. How many houses could it power? Like how many if it was fully operational? So Marvel is uh, at 100 kilowatt thermal right now, and it's a very small power rating. We didn't want to build a full-fledged microreactor, but it's a 100 kilowatt thermal, a 20 kilowatt electric. So you'll probably power like, you know, a couple of homes, but not a entire community. If you look into the equation, one megawatt can power roughly in the United States between 400 to 500 homes with a one megawatt electric. So we're producing 20 kilowatt electric, right? So it's a very small amount relative to other microreactors. But we didn't want to build something so large power output that it becomes a daunting task because we haven't done this for half a century. Yeah. We want to make it too big or we didn't want it to make it even too small that it won't look like a microreactor anymore. So 100 megawatt thermal was kind of our fine balance. But if you take this exact same system and you add a pump to increase the flow rate just even a little bit, then all of a sudden this system, without changing anything, becomes a half a megawatt thermal system, which can power, you know, 33% of that. It's about, you know, 150, 200 kilowatt it can generate with this existing system. And the core is very tiny. It's like about 10 and a half inch wide, and it's about two feet tall. That's really the size of the core. Why do you take 33% of that? Is that because of energy loss and distribution or? No, it's the power conversion. Once you take the heat from a reactor and you, you know, right now we're using Stirling engine based on our current operating temperature, they're about 30, 35. It it ranges from 25 to 35% depending on temperature and transient. But if we use a steam cycle, it'll be about, you know, if we use a superheated steam, you can get 30, 35, 40% depending on the size and scale. How many more houses can it do with the pump? Let's see. It'll be about roughly one-fifth, one-fifth of 500, about 100 homes. Okay, 100 homes. And then if you wanted to 100 exit, so go from 100 homes to 10,000 homes, does the volume of the reactor go up by 100x too? Or is it, Mm -mm. what's the proportion, roughly speaking? If you scale up Marvel, do you have to scale up an order of magnitude and size to get an order of magnitude? That's not the case in, in nuclear, right? So just to give you an idea, Different technologies have different what is called power densities, meaning if you look into just look at the core and the fuel alone, within a certain volume, what is the maximum amount of power you can get out? So just to give you an idea, in a current reactor, it's about 100 megawatt per meter cubed, meaning if you have the core, one meter by one meter by one meter cubed, you can get 100 megawatt thermal energy out of that. For a Marvel-type technology, which is a liquid metal reactor, it's 300 megawatt per meter cubed. So if you want to scale up Marvel to generate higher electricity out of it, it's not like the entire system has to grow significantly. It will have to grow. You have to put more fuel in. But more importantly, how can you remove the heat more effectively, that large amount, right? So if you scale this technology up, you know, you can actually have a even a micro-reactor built a normal-sized microreactor that can power a few thousand homes, depending on, and if you still want to maintain the transportability and geometry aspect. So it's a pretty power-dense system, but we deliberately made sure that we're not using a pump in Marvel because we like to keep things simple. 
But for a commercial version or a scale-up version, it'll be better if it's a pump system, for example. And then it'll be as big as a house? No, 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 no. You know, if you think about like a 20 megawatt thermal system that can make uh, tens of megawatt of electric power, which can power, let's say, about 5,000, 6,000 homes, it should fit in a regular ISO container, roughly speaking. So it's a small system. What's the grand vision here? I mean, um, if everything goes well, walk us through the next decade. I want to answer that question, but there's some, there's a little bit of context I want to develop here. So why are we doing Marvel, right? So if you look into the commercial industry right now, there's various micro-reactor developers you know, coming up with their own designs and developing their technologies. So the reason why we're building Marvel and the reason why we wanted to do it fast was because you know, if you look into the customer and the market, right? We don't have micro-reactors in the commercial space. Nobody knows what they are and how they operate. And can you walk around it? Can you eat a sandwich around it, right? How safe are they? That kind of stuff, right? We can talk about it all day, but it's more impactful when you can actually demonstrate that. You can actually bring customers to the site and say, hey, look, this is a micro-reactor. And I have two operators, but they're not doing much. They're just sitting around. You know, you need very little training. And you can walk around the system and have a picnic just outside the fence and nothing really happens. You're not getting affected by it. So demonstrating a technology has a much profound impact on adoption. So we're saying like, well, we don't have to be the exact same technology as some of the other developers. We'll pick our own. But we're learning because all the folks that knew how to build and design reactors are either retired or passed away, right, from the 60s and 70s. So we're trying to reestablish that resource pool. So we're trying to basically come up with a system that we can actually demonstrate to utilities how that's going to work out. So from time to time, we share what we're learning in Marvel because we're going so fast. We're Every six months or 12 months or so, we have these webinars that we share and we invite all the commercial industry and tell them, hey, you know, here's what we're running into on, on NEPA. Here's how, what challenges we're dealing with supply chain. Here's how we're making fuel. Here's how we actually do go through startup. So a lot of the things that we're doing, we're sharing those lessons learned with industry developers. And there's a lot of things that are common across the board, right? Regardless of technology. So the idea is, if we can share these lessons learned to industry as we are going through the Marvel test reactor, they can learn from it and reduce their risk and they can get to market faster. So when you're asking me, like, you know, what's the next step here? I think there's a lot of moving pieces. I think the commercial industry, I think we want to see some of those systems in the commercial space. Next thing would be to make them economically viable and be able to compete with other technologies. You know, the first of a kind is always a bit more expensive. But as you learn how to bring down the cost, then you can approach a much broader market. How do you define the cost today? Is it like a per megawatt type of cost? How do you do it? So there's different metrics. The most common one is levelized cost of electricity. It's dollars per megawatt hour or cents per kilowatt hour, whichever one you want to use. Mm -hmm. But typically LCOE, and I know some people, they don't like the metric LCOE because it does not take into account resiliency and other factors that are important to a grid. But purely from a cost perspective, LCOE is not a bad metric. So right now, if you look into the national average, uh, it's about nine cents a kilowatt hour. It ranges all the way from, you know, the highest I think is in Alaska, you know, where we have 25 or 30 cents a kilowatt hour. And the lowest is in Idaho, where I live right now, is six cents a kilowatt hour. And there's everything in between there. 
That's a generalized cost of electricity, including all types of electricity, right? Yes, and essentially what the wholesale market charges right now. And that's the metric that we can use for every type of energy technologies is like how much dollar do I need to put in as a cost for the initial investment as well as operating those systems. And in nuclear, we have an added one, which is like you also have a small cost associated to for disposal and storage. There's a cost kept aside for that as well. So all of those, the entire lifecycle cost is captured into it. Fuel cost, operation, maintenance, capex, all that boils down into the LCOE number. What does nuclear get the cost to? I think it varies. I think the existing power plants, I'm not sure exactly where they land in, but I think the number that all the advanced reactors are shooting for is between six to nine cents a kilowatt hour, I believe. So pretty cheap. Yeah, the economics have to flush out. Here's the deal, right? So for the large-scale power plant, economies of scale is what helps you. So the bigger you make, you're not doubling the size to get double the power, right? You're increasing the size a little bit just to get double the amount of power. So economies of scale really help you. But as I mentioned, things get more complex. You have to add more systems. So you're not really helping. And the construction become longer and you know the financing cost because of the higher amount of financing you need is much higher for a large-scale power plant even the utilities are like ah you know what i'm not too sure where we need that large of a power plant anymore would much rather have smaller systems that we can finance easier we don't have a lot of the cost and construction risk the way we see in larger scale power plants so micro reactors they're in a completely different scale of trajectory as far as how we can reduce the cost. So we as a country may not be super great at mega construction, and I'm going to tell you that we're not there, but as a country, what we are really good at is building things in factories. Look at cars. We're good at that, right? Jet engines, computer chips. If you're in a factory setting, you can take advantage of using the same assembly line to continuously make the same product over and over again learn from it. You have the same staff that is making different pieces, same equipment that's making different pieces. It's not project basis, it's product basis, right? Mm. So our hope is that micro reactors are small enough, like the size of cars essentially, or jet engines, if you go a little larger, that you can actually build them in factories. And we actually did a recent study at INL. And because we have Marvel data at hand, we said, okay, let's take Marvel as an example. If we take this reactor, I use use this bottle for for Marvel reference. But if you take Marvel, right, and you want to build a factory to make these, how much does the cost really go down? Just for the Mm -hmm. machine, not for the fuel or anything else, right? So we did a very detailed analysis, like 8,000 steps, you know, 3,500 parts, level by level. We used an automotive industry company to model the whole thing up for us. And we found out that right now, whatever the cost for a -a first-of-a-kind system stick built, we can reduce the cost if you build it in a factory. If the factory has a capability to make 10x, meaning per year, they'll make 10 units, then the cost can come down to about 70% of that original cost, which is very, very drastic from a stick build approach. If you convert that plant to make the factory larger to produce 100 units per year, then you can get another 15% gain on top. So overall, you can get about 75 or 80% reduction versus a stick-build approach if you build things in a factory, which is tremendous. If you look into a cost of a reactor, 
and the capital expenditure is the majority of the driver. But the other element is the fuel performance. That's the other piece of the puzzle. You have to make sure you have a very high performance fuel that does not require you to put so much fuel up front to get that same amount of power. You want a fuel type that is smaller in amount, that has lower fuel cost to be able to give you the same amount of power. And that's where the different technologies come in. Where does the fuel come from? Does it come from... I heard that a ton of the fuel in nuclear reactors comes from like decommissioned nuclear weapons. Is that the case? Or are we making these like enriching you rename still? For commercial nuclear industry, we basically get them from the ground. We mine them and then we extract the right chemistry out of it. And then we enrich them to improve the U-235 level up. And then they get converted basically in a UF-6 form. And then you take that UF-6 uranium hexafluoride. <laughs> you take that and convert that into uranium oxide fuel. So you have mining, conversion, enrichment, fuel fabrication, and then you get fuel pins made out of UO2 for commercial water-based light water reactor technology. There is a program where in Oak Ridge National Lab Y12 complex, where there's an effort to downblend the weapons stockpile and make it into essentially HALU, high SA, low enriched uranium. So you take a weapons grade uranium and downblend it to like less than 20%. And that material can be leveraged for various test reactors, for example, like Marvel. We use Y12 material to make user hydride fuel out of it and use it as a test reactor. There's some material that can be leveraged for this initial set of demonstrations or test reactors, but certainly not a source that we can rely on for forever. So they essentially come from the ground. We have to rely on the commercial nuclear industry to get up to that level to support the advanced reactors. And again, that's another issue, right? For advanced reactors, a lot of the companies are relying on high assay low enriched uranium. It's called HALU. Right now, our enrichment is between like, you know, two and a half percent to around five percent. That's the range. But those advanced reactors are most of them are looking into 19.75 percent. And we have to have that enrichment capability the country does not necessarily have. So there's a lot of investments going on in the DOE, in the private industry to to establish that commercial supply chain for HALU enrichment. I think that's a missing puzzle there. We need to make sure that established in the country. And there's also the different fuel forms, right? At the end of the chain of making fuel, some people use triso, so you need a fuel fabrication facility for triso. Some folks use metal fuel, uranium metal fuel with some mixture of other metals as an alloy. Let's say if a company that wants to commercialize or use something like a user hydride type of fuel, they would need to establish a fuel fabrication facility as well. There's a few things that needs to put in place for mass white adoption, but we're in a chicken and egg problem, right? It's a cash 22 yeah. issue. If you don't have demand, you're not going to invest in those facilities. And if you don't have facilities, you cannot deliver those systems. So it'll take some time to kind of break that cycle and to initiate a demand profile that can have fill some order books and you can start justifying the business case for a fuel fabrication facility. So what's the ideal state in terms of like, if everything works out with Marvelous, like does everyone have one in their home to power it? How does it look like? I mean, you know, from a user, what's that experience like? Where would people encounter Marvel in their day-to-day lives? Yeah, that's a good question. 
So we built Marvel deliberately not to be economically competitive. We built a reactor and powered it down such that when you calculate the dollars per megawatt hour, it's actually an outrageous number. But you can scale this technology up. There's a few companies, startup companies that are looking into the Marvel technology and said, hey, we know how to scale up this technology to a larger scale, but we can leverage the experience from Marvel, similar kind of coolant or fuel type. There's some interest in the commercial space to take this technology and scale it up and by making their own modifications that they have in mind. And that would make it cheaper? Yeah. I think if that happens, you know, you'll find maybe commercial derivatives of the Marvel reactor in the future. But as I mentioned, there's other technologies that are being developed right now by various companies in the market. If they actually are successful in getting a license from the NRC to build their technologies economically, then we'll see those powering communities or campuses around the country. So it's a matter of, at the end of the day, right, you know, everyone's struggling to get to the first demo or the first reactor. But that's not success. Success is from that point, can we deliver a commercially viable, economically viable unit that looks attractive to a utility? Said, okay, I'm, instead of a gas turbine or an on-site coal plant, I'm going to use a microreactor because they're available all the time and they're cost-effective and they emit zero carbon. So great, I'm going to buy those systems, right? But if you have, you know, no emissions, they're safe. I mean, that's a must. The NRC will not license a system that does not meet their high safety pedigree criteria, right? They are there for that reason. So if you see a, a system built, even if it's a test reactor, it has to go through all the metrics of safety performance before the. So that's a given for everybody, right? But at the end of the day, if you're not economically viable you're not going to see that growth beyond that initial demonstration to beyond where somebody would buy a technology over something else, right? So at the end of the day, it has to come down to economics. So that's the key part that needs to be proven, right? Like that's not proven yet. Yes. There's some ideas on how to do that. Is that right? That is correct because everyone's hoping on learnings from other industries, right? Mm -hmm. We know if you're building things in a factory, we can manage the cost. We can manage the schedule. We the can manage cost, the delivery, yeah. Yeah. right? Somebody should demonstrate that, but it's not been done yet. That's where the entrepreneurship comes in. That's the entrepreneurship yeah. that comes in, exactly. We're counting on those entrepreneurs to really show that scalability and cost competitiveness by driving down the cost, ultimately, for mass adoption. It's exciting to hear you speak, Yasser. You know so much about this space, and you're innovating in a really, really difficult space. That is really inspiring. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Thank you.